Thanks for being here together with us. We are grateful that you would join together to worship Jesus. We love to sing about how Jesus has come, and we're going to be doing that increasingly as uh, the next few weeks as we lead up to celebrating Christ's coming. Um, but right now, and this week, next week, we're, we're not deviating from uh, the letter to the Corinthians because we believe that God's word is inspired in every way, and we love the traditions. We're not trying to shun traditions somehow, but we believe that, you know, God, we want to follow God's leading in his word. And so God is just leading us to continue on in the letter to the Corinthians. So turn in your Bible to the, the, the letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're continuing on. And maybe last week, if you were here, you would have heard that the emphasis really is on doing all things to the glory of God. And then now in this passage, Paul is going to give an example. Actually, in, in chapters 11, 12, 13, and 14, he talks about what does it look like to do all for the glory of God in the context of public worship. When the church gathers, what does that look like? Talked about beginning in communion. And then this week is talking about the male-female relationships as they gather in the church. Next week is going to be talking about uh, what does it look like in communion to do all things to the glory of God. And he's going to talk about that throughout those chapters. So if you, though, have been reading along with us in the letter to the Corinthians, you might have noticed this is not an easy passage that we're about to, to encounter. But as a church, we never want to avoid tough passages because we have a difficult time understanding them or because it challenges us. Actually, that's all the more reason to say, let's dive in because everything God says is good for us. And when God says something that challenges us, that's all the more reason to say, Lord, how can we submit ourselves to you in your word? So let's do that together. Turn to God's word, 1 Corinthians 11, chapter 11, verse 2. This is God's holy inspired word for the church. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It's the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it's disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That's why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it's a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it's for her glory. For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Let's pray because we, we need God's help. 
Lord, we come to you, and Lord, we do it. We acknowledge. We acknowledge that sometimes things in your word are hard to understand and hard to apply. But God, thank you that, God, you don't shy away from issues that are hard for us, but, Lord, you, you give us your instruction for our good. Lord, I, I pray that, that you would enable us to understand the heart of your word, that you would enable us to humble ourselves, to submit ourselves to you this morning, right now. God, wherever each and every one of us has been challenged already by the reading of the word, I pray that we would submit ourselves to you, that we might receive from you, that we might glorify you and do all to the glory of God. God, I pray that you would help us as a church, help us as a church to, to honor and glorify you in our worship, Lord. And, and would you help us this morning? Give us your Holy Spirit. We cry out to you. Give us the Spirit. Help us understand. Lord, I pray that you would give me your Spirit that I might proclaim your words. We always need you, but God, we're more aware of our need for you. And we, we have confidence that that Jesus, you came so that we might have you. So we come asking, knowing that you will give us good things and you will give us your spirit. So we pray that in Jesus' name, amen. Well, recently there was a male swimmer in the NCAA who competed for three years in a row as a male swimmer. And he was decent, but not the best in his in his. Uh, school that he was competing in, he decided to take a couple years off to transition to being a woman, and then he competed as a woman on the Penn State swim team, and he has now shattered every record at Penn State for women's sports. His, he, he led his uh, championship swim meet by 38 seconds ahead of the next one behind him. It was an historical record of the difference between the lead and the next swimmer in NCAA women's swimming at Penn State. Some people say that's good, while others, who've historically called themselves even feminists, would say that's unfair. It actually leads to discrimination against women and the denigration of women. You might think, what in the world am I bringing this up for? Paul is actually talking about the differences between men and women. He's talking about the differences in roles, the differences in God's good design between men and women in this passage. And, and you think of passages like this at first, you read it and like, what in the world does this have to do with us? It talks about head coverings, right? Well, Paul is actually showing us some timeless principles that apply to us, that give us clarity. How do we navigate through difficult issues? How do we view men and women, the different genders and their roles? Well, Scripture is not silent on the matter. It, it speaks to that. It gives us principles that help inform us, that speak to the confusion about the differences between men and women, that give clarity. And as a church, and, and, and thank, thanks be to God that his word, it doesn't shy away from hard topics because God wants to help us through hard topics. People blur the lines between gender. They ignore God-given differences in the roles of men and women, and it causes confusion and problems. And that's where we need to say, well, let's go back to what does God's word say about who we are, who he made us to be. And that's what this passage is talking about. It goes back to the created order of who God made us to be as men and women. And then it establishes not only the, the different genders, it also talks about the fact that there are different roles that are meant to reflect the Godhead. 
And that helps bring clarity and confidence as we approach these issues in our own life. How do we think through these things? Well, we know that, that although it might be difficult, whenever God speaks to us, it's for our good, right? Can we agree on that? Whenever God speaks to us in his word, it's for our good. And then when God, we go against God's given design and intention for us, it leads to trouble. When the culture opposes what God says, we need to understand even more, what does God really say? And what we've seen in this passage is that God does have something to say about how we conduct ourselves and the differences that we have between men and women, that there are God-given differences between men and women, and that how we conduct ourselves, especially in the context of church worship, it's important. And, and then all, all of these passages from 11 to 14 are really about that. How, how we conduct ourselves, including how we conduct ourselves as men and women, are important in the church. And what we see at the beginning of, of really what Paul is addressing is that the Corinthians understood something. They rightly understood there is gospel-inspired freedom in worship. And that's the first thing we're going to look at as well, is that the Corinthians, they, they, they weren't getting everything wrong. They were getting some things very right. They understood that there was gospel-inspired freedom in worship. That because of what Jesus came to do, he broke down the dividing walls that once separated us between men and women, where they were once separate, where, where there was cultural subjugation of women, and, and there is now gospel freedom. And so they were living in that, and Paul, is, he commends them for that. He commends them for actually living in response to the gospel. That's what he means, means when he says that, hey, I, I commend you, and he's being earnest. He's not, he's not just puffing them up. I commend you for the fact that you remember me in everything and you maintain the traditions as I delivered them to you. And what traditions he's talking about, we know from elsewhere in Corinthians, that he's talking about the traditions that he's given to them. It's, it's gospel traditions. It's not just when we think traditions, we think, hey, this is a practice that's been handed down. Well, yes, when Paul's talking about practices handed down, he's talking about gospel traditions delivered to them. How do we know that? Well, if you skip ahead in your Bibles, I don't have this on the screen, so you can hold your finger in, in that passage and go over to chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. And in chapter 15, he clarifies what these traditions are that he's delivered. He says, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received in which you stand, by which you are being saved, if you hold fast the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And now he gets on to what he's delivered. What are these traditions he's delivered? He says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He is buried, he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. He's commending the Corinthians for the fact that, that they have received these traditions from him willingly. They've received this gospel traditions. They've received this gospel preaching. And they've, in everything, sought to maintain that. But you know what? Just because they've sought to maintain that doesn't mean they're doing it fully. We've received gospel traditions from the apostles as they've written down Christ's words. But, but you know, we're not right in absolutely every area of practice, and the Corinthians weren't either. But, but I love that, that Paul views them, and this is just a, a little segue. He, 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 he's aware of their deficiencies. He's aware of their needs. He's aware of the areas that need correction. But, but he begins with commending them because he knows they've been changed by the gospel of God's grace. And, and he views them, though, as, as those who 
are trying to maintain those gospel traditions, even if they're not getting it right. And so that's commendable. When you, when you find a brother or sister, by the way, who is, who is maybe off a little bit in an area or who might need some correction or adjustment or explanation of how Scripture applies to how they're living, don't begin with just those areas that need to change. Begin with an understanding of that. If this is a brother or sister in Christ, you can honestly have faith for them and commend them because they're maintaining, they're seeking to maintain these gospel traditions that have been handed down to us. Now skip down to something else that we see he's commending in them is that this gospel-inspired freedom inspires worship. So he, he, he's commending them because they're trying to maintain the gospel and part of what they've gotten is that they are actually now free to worship God as men and women together. In, in the Jewish context, they weren't free to do that. Women actually had to worship behind a veil. They sat behind the men and behind a veil and they weren't really in the same section. They weren't free to worship. They couldn't pray publicly in gatherings. And, and now the Corinthians have grasped this gospel freedom rightly. And men and women, they're praying together. They're prophesying together. They're sharing words of encouragement when they gather together. And they were experiencing this freedom that comes in the gospel that, that says that, that Christ has torn down those dividing walls. He blows away all the cultural stereotypes of men and women. And that in him we are equal in value and worth. And so the Corinthians grasped that. But there's something else there. If you look down, he, he, you, know, you might not be surprised when it says every man in verse 4. It says every man who prays or prophesies. That wouldn't be surprising. But now skip over to verse 5 for a second. It says, says something that would have been surprising to a Jew hearing this. He says every wife who prays or prophesies. This is in the context of a public worship gathering. This would have been unheard of in, in even Corinth in a secular setting for men and women to gather together and men and women both to share, men and women both to, to pray out loud, to, to prophesy out loud. Here's the freedom in the gospel that they, they're grasping that Paul's going to draw some boundaries and help them understand some things. They were grasping that they are freedom in the gospel. And Paul is actually endorsing that. It says, every man who prays and prophesies. Then he says, every woman who prays and prophesies. And by the way, that's why, as a church, we're not just okay with women praying publicly or women coming up to a ministry mic and sharing a word of encouragement or sometimes a prophetic word. It's because Scripture endorses that and expects that. There's an expectation that this would be normative for men and women equally to have the freedom to pray and prophesy when the church gathers. There's a freedom, a gospel-inspired freedom in worship that the Corinthians grasped, that they had, that we have. It was a direct confrontation with the culture of that day that said that women were inferior to men. And so Paul says women, when they come, they pray, they prophesy. He expects it'll be a norm but, but he gives some, some caveats to it, not because he's trying to discourage it. He's actually saying, when they, come, when they come, when they pray, when they prophesy, when it be done in a certain way, because the, the Corinthians were experiencing freedom, gospel-inspired freedom in their worship, and that was good. But then some of their practices, it, it, made it, it, it told a false story about who they were. I don't think it was intentional. I don't know if Paul is saying it was intentional or not. That's why he's not coming at them hard. But he's correcting some notions there, and he's, he's giving them some, 
some truths they can hang on to that there is gospel-inspired, not only gospel-inspired freedom in worship, but gospel-inspired order in worship. And that's what we see. We see gospel-inspired order in worship. Look in verse 3. He says, I want you to understand. He commends them for the gospel that they're holding to these traditions. And he, he shares later that I, when you come, when you pray and prophesy, that's good. But then he, he says, but I want you to understand something. I want you to understand what that practice should look like. And he says, I want you to understand that it comes, the practice is coming from a principle. And for us as a church, um, we need to highlight the principle here because practices can change throughout cultures. Different forms of dress mean different things in different times and different places. And back in the 80s, I went to a church and everyone there wore um, a three-piece suit. And if you wonder what a three-piece suit is, it's a vest underneath of the suit. I, they don't, I don't think anybody does that anymore, but... And it would have been weird not to do that. And finally, the pastors there experienced gospel freedom. And they realized that, wait a minute, why are we doing this? The culture around us, is, it stands out. That's really odd. It's not normative. Um, and so they adopted their practice. It wasn't something more biblical or less biblical. Um, why do I wear khakis and a, and a dress shirt? It's because I don't want anybody to notice what I wear either way. I don't want to draw attention to myself. I want to draw attention to God. And that's the point. Paul is, he's explaining some principles here and he says, I want you to understand this principle. And he gives principles of Christian worship but he gives principles that apply to us as men and women. And he says, I want you to understand that the head of every, now look at the order he tells us and he says, the head of every man is Christ. And he says, now the head of a wife is her husband. And then he says something at the end which you would have thought would have been the other way if he was talking about a hierarchical order, but he's not. He says the head of every man is Christ, the head of every wife is her husband. And then he says, now the head of Christ is God. So even, even from the argument here, he's, he's not talking about a hierarchical order of, or one of inferiority versus superiority, so let's abolish that notion. Christ is not inferior to God. Christ is not and somehow subservient to God, even though he willingly submitted to God. And it's this same principle of headship that drove Christ's desire to submit to God, that drives our desire to submit to Christ as men, and, and wives' desire to submit to their husbands. It's all honoring God. There's a principle there that, that everyone has a head. Everyone has a head. The behavior of man in worship, it reflects on Christ, who is his head, his representative. Jesus and his example is behind what's, Paul, what's behind Paul's instruction to the church about gospel-oriented submission for men and women. Jesus was not somehow inferior to God. So the idea of a man submitting to Christ or a woman submitting to man. He's not trying to convey superiority here. He's actually showing a God-glorifying, willing submission that reflects Jesus, what Jesus did in the gospel. Man is to relate to Christ as his authority, as his head. A wife is to relate to her husband in a, in a posture of voluntary submission that puts the gospel on display. 
And God desires that every man, every person submit to Christ. And, and that's the way that we honor God. And so as a husband, he willingly submits to Christ. He displays the submission of Christ to God in the gospel. As a wife willingly submits to her husband, she displays this beauty of the humility of the gospel. The Son of God, equal in worth and same essence as God. Same worth and value as God, and yet different in personhood, willingly submits to the Father. And that's the same picture that we're to have. We're to give willing submission to Christ, and, and wives give willing submission to their husbands. This, this, our worship gatherings, what's Paul after? The fact that this principle is that our worship gatherings actually should reflect and display the gospel accordingly. And we can view each other as different in gender and different in roles, and that actually is God-glorifying, God-honoring. And, and the reverse is true as well. When we tear down those distinctions between men and women, when we tear down those distinctions in roles, we actually say something untrue and unglorify God. Now you may wonder, what in the world? Paul is talking here about both men and women. We can, we can hone in on the one that's really touchy, right? The one about women having a head covering or women submitting to their husbands. That's a touchy topic, right? We have to acknowledge that. And it's okay to say, you know what, these are difficult things. But he doesn't just talk to women, he talks to men as well. He expects men to submit to Christ. And, and if you are aware of his letter to the Ephesians, what he talks about that looking like submitting to Christ is being willing to die and to give ourselves up for our wives. I don't know that that's easier. It's different. And then he addresses the men here. He says, every man who prays and prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. What is he talking about? It's hard for us to understand because in our culture, everybody doesn't ha has their head uncovered, Right? Well, in, in that day, there was a statue in Corinth, actually, of Caesar Augustus, and he had, he had pulled his toga up over his head and, and formed a shawl. And there's a statue in Corinth of him doing that. Uh, he was having his toga as a veil in preparation for offering a sacrifice. And then it became common practice when they would go into pagan temples that the men would put their, their togas or their cloaks over their heads as a shawl in their pagan worship. So what Paul's addressing is not this physical practice, but the fact of what it represented. It was a symbol of something. It was a symbol that, that was too close to the culture around them because the culture around put this veil, the men put this veil over their heads, they put this covering over their heads when they worshiped in pagan temples. And Paul says, don't do that in church. It's gonna communicate something wrong. It's going to dishonor Christ as your head. It's going, to, it's going to say that you're belonging to another. So he's saying, don't, don't do that. Don't dishonor your head. Now, he's talking about a physical head. He's talking about representative head, Christ. Don't dishonor Christ by having the same kinds of practices that the pagans do. I don't want anybody to be confused. You're not submitting to a pagan deity. You're submitting to God, who we come before with unveiled faces. And that culture would have been undermining God's created order. And so then he moves on to a woman. He says, you know, for a woman to wear her hair down or to, to appear in worship with her head uncovered, in that culture, it would have signified something. Now today, in our culture, when a woman has her hair down, it doesn't signify that. So what's he after? He's after a principle here. He's after a principle. He says, we should reflect 
who our head is when we gather to worship. We should give honor and glory to God's good order when we gather to worship. And, and when we not just worship here as in, in our services, but when we worship in all of life. He explains it even further in verse 7. It says, For man ought not to cover his head. He is the image and glory of God. Man was intended to point to, to glorify God. And then it says something that for us, you're like, what in the world is this talking about? It says, but woman is the glory of man. Woman's meant to point to the glory of mankind, that, that man is made in the image of God. And how men and women behave differently according to differences in gender and differences in biblical roles is meant to bring glory to God. And he gives a practical example. You know, man has Christ, what he's talking about as a metaphorical head. It's to represent the glory of God and to be uncovered would, and be uncovered in worship. Otherwise, it would be saying that he has someone else as his head. And woman who has man as her metaphorical head here is to represent the glory of man and remain covered in worship, saying that, that, someone, that her husband is her head. But at issue here is not what's physical, but what it represents and how both are approaching, needing to approach God in a way that rightly shows God's good order, his good design. And how men and women are both intended to reflect the goodness of God's glory and his design of creation. And then it explains even more. He says, you know, for in verse 8, it says, Man was not made for woman, but from, from woman, but woman from man. What's he going back to? He's, he's going back to the created order, but the created order here is not pointing to the fact that we have to have physical head coverings. The created order is saying that we were meant to bring glory to another. Man's meant to bring glory to another. Woman's meant to bring glory to another. We were created not to draw glory to ourselves, but to draw glory to God and his order. And so he explains this from creation. He says, neither man was not made from woman, but woman was made from man. It's affirming that statement that man's made in the image of God and woman is the glory of man. He says man wasn't created for woman, but woman for man. This is not a, a subjugation thing. This is not an inferior thing because in Genesis as well, it says man and woman both are equally created in the image of God. But he's talking about a difference in function, a difference in role, a difference in gender expression. And then he says, that's why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. Now, now for us today, it actually would have the reverse connotation. If, if women came in here and had head coverings, it would actually communicate something that might be detrimental to the gospel. It might communicate to the culture that women are subservient or somehow secondary to men. Versus in this culture, in this day, when a woman wore a head covering, it was a wife would wear a head covering. It was actually signified that she was married, that she belonged to another, that she was reverencing and honoring another. To take that off would be act like she was unmarried, uncommitted, not reverencing and honoring. It doesn't have the same connotations for us today. And people wouldn't get that today either. So he's not talking about something and a practice here that we're meant to just cut and paste the practice, but what he's talking about is a principle here. Are we, are we honoring God's good order and design and creation? Are we honoring that in how we gather to worship? Are we honoring that in who we display, who we glorify, how we glorify God? And then you have a really weird verse in verse 10. It's awkward. 
when he says, because of the angels, a woman needs to have a symbol of authority on her head? You know, I have to admit, I don't like exactly sure what he means. And the good news is, is no commentator is exactly sure what Paul means. But I think probably, probably it's that Paul, he, he was aware that the spiritual world is, is more real than this physical world and that angels are always all around us. And that when we gather, the angels are participating in worship with us. And so what I think this means is that Paul is saying, hey, you're not alone. It's not just you guys you're displaying the glory of God for. You're also displaying this for the angels. And so it gives a greater weight. I think that's what he means. But in any case, angels aren't crucial to the argument. They're just really reinforcing that point about the fact that the need to honor the glory of our respective head. And then he gives... Three arguments, really. He argues from theology, then from nature, and then from practice. He's argued from theology, the theology of the fact that in creation, everyone has a head. Everyone's called to submit to God. Everyone's called to give glory to God in those differences in our roles and how we carry those out. But he doesn't just talk about differences in theology. He also talks about nature. And then he talks about practice. He wrote about there, in, in verse 11, he's also giving a caveat too, so that you don't misunderstand the scripture and don't misapply it and say that, well, somehow then man doesn't need woman or woman doesn't need man. Well, in verse 11, he says, no, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about a hierarchy here. He says, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man. But then he says something shocking in that culture. He says, nor is man independent of woman. There is a mutual interdependency And he says in verse 12, for as woman was made from man, so now man is born of woman. Yes, to begin with, woman was taken from man's side, a rib. God put Adam to sleep. He took a rib from her side and he created woman from that rib. But now, every man alive has been born from a woman. And this impossibility of without having a woman's genetic code, we would not exist. But he says that design, though, those differences and yet our interdependency, those differences in role, differences in gender, and yet our interdependency, he says at the end of verse 12, all of those things, all things are from God. Now that phrase should remind you of that all things are from God earlier in chapter 10 when he says all things are from God. And by the way, let's glorify God in all things. These differences between men and women and yet the equality in our ability to freedom in worship and in our interdependency. All of these things are from God intended to give God glory. We shouldn't shy away from things like this because it's actually for our good. For society's good, for the church's good, for the gospel's message to go forth clearly. And there's something else clear is that it's important about how we conduct ourselves in the context of public worship in a way that brings glory to God and doesn't draw attention to ourselves. You see, for a woman who's a wife to come into a meeting and have her head uncovered or have her hair down, it would have been very distracting because um, women in that culture, when they let their hair down, it was, a, it was showing that they were available. And in some contexts, it would, it would symbolize promiscuity. Now, Paul knows that they're not they're not trying to do that. They're giving the wrong message. And he says, don't do that. Don't, don't give a misleading message. Don't draw attention to your own glory. 
You have freedom, but don't glorify yourself in worship. That's true for all of us. We're not called to glorify ourselves and worship, be primarily worried about whether somebody sees us with our hands lifted up or we have our hands down because we're worried about what people will think about us. I want you to be free in worship and not to glorify yourself but to glorify God. And then he, then he gives, he says, some other arguments from theology. He says, judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? And he, he gives a matter that they're going to have to use wisdom in. To judge for yourselves in regards to what's culturally fitting for a man and a woman that would honor God's good design. And that's true for us today, too. We have to decide, okay, what's culturally fitting that would actually honor God's good design for men and for women? You know, maybe for us it looks like dressing in certain culturally normative ways that honors what would be considered culturally, historically uh, to dress like a woman, or it might be culturally, historically to dress like a man and not blurring those lines, but not blurring the lines between gender distinctions, but not, not blurring those lines between different roles and gender as well. He says, judge for yourselves. How, how to do that? You're going to have to, you're gonna have to think through these things. This is not something we just say, okay, now we have a new law. Now we have a new practice. You know, the, the, the worst thing would be for all the women next week to come and have, have a veil over their head. That wouldn't be a right application of this passage. But, but Paul wants them to understand how, how would it be fitting for us to honor God and honor, for a woman to honor her husband, to, to give glory to God, and us to honor those gender differences. What does it look like to not draw attention to ourselves which actually in this day, uh, head covering would probably do and be distracting. So how, how do we not do that? How, we, can, how can we not be a distraction? How can we honor God? And then he gives an argument from nature. Look down at verse 14. He says, doesn't nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it's a disgrace for him? What he's not saying here is that it's always wrong for a man to have long hair because there were Nazarite vows that they wouldn't cut their hair. Think of Samson. He had long hair. Does that mean it's categorically wrong? No. But generally, in that culture, in that day, it was seen as feminine or womanly for a man to have long hair. Now, I don't know how long the apostles and Jesus kept their hair. Most likely, it, it, was a, it wasn't down their backs. But he's saying the culture in that day would have said it was disgraceful for a man to have long hair. So don't do anything that draws attention to yourself unduly. And, and he tells the same thing for a woman. He says, he says, for a woman has long hair, it's for her glory. And so if a woman was in that day to cut her hair short, it would have meant something. Today, women, you are allowed to biblically cut your hair short. It doesn't communicate, it doesn't communicate something wrong or that you're not honoring God. In our culture today, there's, there's doesn't communicate that anymore. But what he's highlighting here is that to display God's good design by highlighting the differences between men and women. And glorying God, glorifying God through those things. And then he gives an, an argument from practice. He says that, you know, it's the same way as if, if a wife came with her head uncovered, it'd be the same thing as she had her head shaven. And by the way, when a woman would shave her head in that culture, it was, it was typically either punishment or she was a slave. It was, a husband would shave a wife's head who was committed adultery, would shave her head, and it was a shame and a disgrace. She brought shame and disgrace on her husband by having a shaved head. Or... It would be a slave who had a shameful position. And he says, you know, don't, don't uncover your head because that'd be just like having your head shaven, so you might as well just go ahead and shave your head. Well, he's not 
telling women, hey, if you're going to have your head uncovered, go ahead and shave them. But anyways, he's giving us some principles here. The disgrace of the wives, it was discrediting this God-given idea of headship and, and submission, and it hindered the gospel witness. He says, because it's disgraceful, let her cover her head. And so he's talking about both for men and for women, don't bring disgrace on God's name. Don't bring disgrace on God's good design. Don't bring disgrace on God's good order. And he's concerned that the Christians, that they honor the, the modesty, the virtue of that culture. They avoid behaving in a, in a way that the culture considers suggestive in worship because it was distracting. You know, for us today, a lack of a head covering is not considered suggestive at all. I've never thought that. I've never thought, wow, look at all those women with nothing on their heads. Wow, that's hot. I mean, you know, that's, that's not, <laughs> can we be real here? Scripture's talking about real things. And then he gives another example from practice. He says, anybody's inclined to be contentious? We have no such practice. He says, you know, the, this is true in all the churches. This is the way that churches are seeking to honor God. And so what's culturally normative in those churches is what I want you to understand. Don't try to go against what's culturally normative because you want to stick out. You want to be different. You're drawing attention to yourself. Um, no, your primary attention should be drawing attention and glory to God. So what's it ultimately about? It's about the glory of Christ. Now I want you to think about the examples he's given. What do you think about the examples he's given? It says, the head of Christ is God in verse 3. And that's the principle really that, that drives this whole passage. And so what do we, what do we see? we see? We see really, he's talking about a gospel submission. Everyone here is in this passage is submitting in some way, except for God the Father. Christ submitting to God, a man submitting to Christ. A woman, a wife submitting to her husband. And by the way, it doesn't say all women submitting to all men. This is a wife submitting to her husband, not somebody else's husband. When do you get that straight to? I do not expect every woman in the church to submit to every man in the church. That's not biblical. No, we're actually coming equally before God. We're equally called to pray, to prophesy. We're interdependent. That's what he talks about in this passage here. But there is a gospel submission that glorifies God that he's talking about. This, that's the final thing we're going to look at really quickly is there, there's a gospel submission that glorifies God. And that gospel submission, it doesn't start with us. It starts this, this tradition we've received. What's this gospel tradition we've received? It is this good news that we just sang about, the last song that, that I prayed about at the beginning. Here is the wonderful news. That Jesus, the Son of God, who is co-equal with God in every way, equal in essence, equal in being, separate in personhood, but equal in every way, eternally equal. And yet Jesus, here's, here's the gospel, and without this submission, there is no gospel. So submission is not something we should think is less than. It's our hope. You see, our hope is that Jesus, the Son of God, he submitted to the will of the Father. That was also his will to come. But he submitted to the will of the Father, and he graciously came to seek and to save the lost, to submit himself, to condescend to become human, humble himself to become a man, and then not only become a man, but be born in the most humble of circumstances, and not just to be born in a place where animals fed, but to be raised in a, in a 
in, in that day in a poor household instead of being raised as a king, and then to die an ignominious death, a shameful, shameful, humiliating death on the cross. This is gospel submission on display that glorifies God. That's our hope. Gospel submission is beautiful and it's meant to point us to the glory of God. That God would condescend, that Christ would condescend to become human. And then, you know what he prayed when he was in the garden? Right before he knew he was about to be betrayed by one of his friends. He's he's praying and he says, Father, let this cup pass for me. Let this cup of your wrath. I'm about to submit myself to receive your wrath in an undeserving way. Let this cup pass for me. But he says something that was significant. He says, nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. That's our hope. This gospel submission that, that glorify God is our hope. And so we can respond to something like this and say, wait a minute. There's nothing belittling about Christ submitting to God. It's, it's glorious. Christ, the head, lays down his life for the church. Husbands, submit to Christ. We're called to lay down our lives for our wife like Christ lays down his life for the church. That glorifies God. This is not talking about a domineering culture here. Don't misread this passage at all. This is talking about a glorifying God by mutual submission, by submitting to Christ willingly, bringing glory to God's good design and carrying out that role as a husband, carrying that that gender role out as a husband and leading our wife by laying down our lives. That is actually how we glorify God in the public worship. As a wife willingly submits to her husband, it brings glory to God's good design. This is not subservient. It's following the example of Christ. Worship practice in the church was drawing undue attention to themselves in in Corinthians. They were confused. They were confused about their freedoms, and they thought that their freedoms now, when it says that he's torn down the dividing walls of separation between men and women, well, they were saying, well, well, maybe this, this gets rid of all distinctions. And Paul says, no, it doesn't get rid of those distinctions between the ginger. It doesn't get rid of the distinctions and roles. And in fact, though, we do have freedom in him, to approach equally before God equally and come to his throne of grace to, to pray and to prophesy equally. And by the way, later on in a few chapters we're gonna talk about prophesying. Looking forward to that. And I encourage both men and women to do that, to, to pray, to prophesy, to, to be equal participants in worship. But their practice was drawing undue attention to themselves and confusion, causing confusion in worship. And God says, no, I don't, I don't want you to do that. I, You have freedom, but this freedom is actually highlighted by the differences you have. It glorifies God in these differences. It doesn't obliterate them. No, those differences actually are meant to glorify the multifaceted grace of God in the gospel. It says, don't give undue attention to yourself, but draw due attention to God. We have to, to think through, how do we apply this first to ourselves? I think it begins in our hearts with how, how are we seeking to give due honor and attention and glory to God in our worship? 
No matter what anybody else thinks around us, are we, are we primarily worshiping God? Now, sometimes it might look like you're going to raise your hands because you are more concerned with glorifying God than you are worried about whether or not you get ostracized from people or, or vice versa. Or if you're raising your hands because you want to glorify yourself, you might need to put them down because you're saying, hey, wait a minute, I need to glorify God from my heart. So this is not prescriptive of any certain practice, but this is talking about the heart to glorify God, to honor God. And then it's also talking about that as men and women How do we seek to honor God in our practice in the church with different genders, different roles? Are we seeking to love God as we gather and glorify him as we live in response to this good news of the gospel? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you give us passages that address hard topics. Because, Lord, you want us to live in light of your good news. And know what does it look like to do that? How, do, how can we respond from our hearts in a way that glorifies you? So God, help us to do that in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing.